Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to be here with you to be able to preach. I've got a question. What would you do if you were betrayed by a close friend? You know, maybe you've, you've brought them into your life, you've, you've made yourself vulnerable to them, you've opened up, only to have them abuse you and stab you in the back. Sadly, for many of us, this isn't just a hypothetical question. This is a, something that we all know far too well. Maybe even we're the ones that who have betrayed others. Well, Jesus himself certainly knew it well, as we just heard in this passage today. Jesus, just in this little passage alone, is deserted, he's denied, he's betrayed by pretty much every person on earth. He's got no one left. Both his enemies and his closest friends have turned their back on him. But through all of this injustice that Jesus suffered, he remained faithful, faithful to his disciples, his apostles, and faithful to the Father's will. Today we're going to look at four things in this passage. First is the deception of Judas. Second will be the delusion of the chief priests and scribes. Third will be the denial of Peter. And fourth will be the deliverance of Christ. Those will be our four points this morning. And the idea, I think, the idea that ties all of those four points together is is this. Jesus obediently suffered at the hands of sinful humanity for the sake of sinful humanity. That's the big idea. Jesus obediently suffered at the hands of sinful humanity for the sake of sinful humanity. Hopefully by the time that we're done here, after the sermon, you'll be able to explain what that means. That'll make more sense as we're walking through the text. Since the middle of the Gospel of Mark, the direction of Jesus has become more and more clear. He's got to suffer, he's got to die, and he's got to rise again. He said it over and over again. And we've known that this is going to happen and now it's coming close. The, the, the pace is quickening towards the cross. I just want to catch us up quickly to where we're at here in the text. Uh, Judas has made a deal with the chief priests and scribes in order to betray Jesus. They want to kill him, and so he's like, well, I know where he's at. I can, I can lead you to him. And so they offer him money to do that. Uh, Jesus has just shared his last supper with the disciples, in which he revealed to them that one of them would betray him. Jesus then told Peter that he's going to deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows twice, but they all swore allegiance. They swore they would die with Jesus rather than deny him. And then following that last supper, Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane, where he often goes to spend time in prayer. And he asks three of his closest disciples to stay up with him, to keep watch, to pray, pray that they wouldn't enter into temptation. But they couldn't stay awake, couldn't do it. The spirit was willing, flesh was weak, they couldn't stay awake. But Jesus stayed awake. He did pray uh, because he was grieving this intense suffering that he was about to have to face. He asked the father if it was possible to avoid this cup of wrath, this suffering that he was uh, about to embrace. Yet ultimately he did embrace it. He submitted to it. And then Jesus woke up the disciples and said, the hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And that is where we find ourselves this morning. That's where we pick up in verse 43. So that's our first point here. Let's, we want to look first at the deception of Judas, okay? And we're going to see this in verses 43 to 52 of chapter 14. I know Trey read this and he did a good job. I'm going to read it again because I think it's, I, I want you to be really familiar with this story so that you know that what I'm saying hopefully comes out of the text. I'm not just making stuff up. I'm going to read it for us again. And immediately while he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came. 
one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple preaching, teaching. You didn't seize me then. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Well, when Jesus started his, his ministry, uh, hopefully you'll recall, we started the series earlier in, in the fall last year, he called 12 men, 12 apostles, 12 disciples to, to follow him and to learn, to, to preach, to learn, to cast out demons. Judas Iscariot was one of those 12. He was given the responsibility of taking care of the money bag for the disciples, and he traveled with Jesus for all those years. All those disciples, he, he, traveled, he, he must have watched Jesus, obviously, heal all the lepers, making the blind see, the lame walk, raising the dead. He would have heard Jesus clearly declaring that he was the promised Messiah, the Christ. He would have seen the way that Jesus lived, perfectly practicing what it was that he preached. But Judas decided that he was going to make a plan with the religious leaders who wanted to, to kill Jesus. His motivation, though, I think is a little unclear. Why? Why would Judas want to betray Jesus? Maybe he was just trying to save his own neck. I mean, he knows that Jesus is going to be arrested anyways. Maybe I can save myself. Or maybe he was jealous of the other disciples. Maybe he wanted to force Jesus into action to overthrow that Roman government that was oppressing the Jewish people. Or maybe he just did it for the money. He was a thief, after all. He had been stealing out of the money bag that he was given charge over. So maybe he did. Maybe he just did it for the money. But Judas, I think it's weird. Judas didn't even suggest a price when he brought Jesus to the chief priests. He just said, here he is. What do you give me? So I think it seems like, I could be wrong here, but it seems like he really just wanted to betray Jesus and the money was sort of a cherry on top. That's what it seems like to me. Because 30 pieces of silver in today's value, today's dollars, is about $7,500 pretty good chunk of change, but I don't think it's enough to change the whole direction of your life. I think there's more to it than just his greed. Well, whatever his reason for betraying him, Judas was actually viewed as everyone as like a legit follower of Jesus. He shared in the apostles' ministry. Uh, Luke tell, or Peter tells us in Acts a little bit later. He, he didn't just see these things that Jesus was doing. He, he helped. He helped the lame walk. He helped the blind see. He even cast out demons. Everybody thought that he was bona fide. And here's how we know that, because when Jesus at the Last Supper said, one of you 12 is going to betray me, nobody, nobody's like, let me guess, stinking Judas, right? No, they go, is it I? Is it I? Nobody guessed that it would be Judas, because he was a really skilled hypocrite. Judas was good. He pretended to care for the poor, although he was secretly stealing from the money bag. He pretended to be dedicated to Jesus even though he was secretly preparing to hand him over to be killed. Even on the night of his betrayal, he pretends to respect and to love Jesus while secretly pointing him out to those that would arrest him. 
He deceived everyone around him. This man, who had cast out demons, in the end invited the devil into himself. Judas had bad motives, and he took wrong actions. He pretended to be a follower of Christ, but in reality, he was the devil's deputy. See, Judas wanted that reputation of being a true follower, but he had a false heart. Spurgeon said, To have a fair reputation and a false heart is to stand on the brink of hell. Hopefully we can all see the danger of the hypocrisy that Judas is practicing here, right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if Judas told the disciples about this evil plot that he was hatching? You know, what if he just run this idea up the flagpole if the other disciples is like, what do you guys think of this? Is, am I off base here? Does this seem like a good choice? Surely the disciples would have, would have tried to wake him up and say, no, bro, you can't do that. Surely they would have tried to, to wake him up and correct him. But Judas didn't do that. He didn't open himself up. Brothers and sisters, I think it's a good thing to be able to be honest about your weaknesses, maybe your, your, your crisis of faith, your doubt, and to be able to ask for counsel, to be able to ask for prayer in those things. Don't just broadcast your sin willy-nilly, obviously, but there should be a group of, of people that, that love you, that trust you, that you trust, that you're willing to go and be honest, that people that will speak the truth about you to you. Find someone that you trust and ask for prayer. And maybe even this morning, maybe you're sitting in the pew having a crisis of faith. Maybe you're having doubts. Don't pretend like you're not so that you can save face with us while secretly planning to reject Jesus. Don't do it. Turn to a brother and sister. Find someone that you trust. Find an elder here. They'll be glad to pray with you. And, brothers and sisters, if someone comes to you and asks for this sort of prayer, don't shun them. Embrace them. Give them the comfort of Christ and the grace of Christ. Let them know that nothing that they can do is beyond the gaze and the reaching arm of Christ. Well, Judas' betrayal also means, I think, that we can't be shocked when there are people that go out from us, people that reveal themselves to be apostate, a false convert, apostate. How many of us this morning can think of someone, maybe even someone who used to sit right next to you in the pew here, who is disconnected now from any church, who's rejected the authority of the Bible altogether, no longer practicing the faith in any way? It's shocking, there's no doubt. It's shocking, it's heartbreaking for sure. But it can't be surprising. If Judas, who had tasted of the heavenly gift, who had shared in the Holy Spirit, if he can fall away, it may well be that there are others who have the appearance of being a legitimate follower of Christ who in fact are not. It's got to be a category that we have. It can be really upsetting, but don't let that, don't let that shipwreck your faith when you see other people falling and rejecting Christ. First John says that they've gone out from us because they were not of us. I think that was the case with Judas. But friends, make sure that your faith is in Jesus. Make sure that your faith is in Jesus and not in the faithfulness of other religious people. You'll be in danger. Well, Judas knew that Jesus would be praying in the garden. He knew he was going to be there. And so that's why he led this group of armed officials, scribes, elders, priests, with clubs and with swords, into the garden under the cover of darkness so that they can arrest and kill Jesus. Here he is, Judas, leading this wretched hive of scum and villainy to arrest 
and to kill Jesus. And Jesus steps out. He takes, he takes the initiative. He steps out to meet them. He willingly submits himself to be arrested. Despite the fact that there's a giant crowd there with clubs and swords, you might think that they're in control of the situation here. It's not the case. Jesus is in charge here in the garden. Judas approaches Jesus, calls him rabbi, teacher. It's a sign of great affection. And kisses him passionately. Judas's fake signs of affection were, in reality, the signals of his betrayal. Well, friends, what do you do when someone who bears the name of Christ betrays you? There's hardly anything more anguishing than being stabbed in the back by a close, trusted friend. You can imagine the venom dropping from the lips of Judas even as he kisses the Son of Man. But if we read in Matthew's account of the same story, Jesus calls Judas friend, even after that kiss. He knows what he's there to do. See, Jesus does not return that venom, and neither can we. We can't insist that we have the right to hate and hate again because others persecute us. Jesus himself said it. Blessed is he who is persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus understands. Jesus knows. He knows the deep hurt of being betrayed. And yet he never lost that love that conquered hate. So when you've been betrayed, you can lean on him for strength. Contemplate the cross. Think about how Jesus was betrayed because of you and the sins that you had committed against him for you. I don't think, I don't know what all of your situations are, but certainly the rebellion that you showed against God and sinning against him is greater than what has been sinned against you. We should extend that grace that we have been shown by Christ. And uh, what do we make about those two verses about the, the naked fellow with the linen cloth? That's always been kind of weird for me. And even in studying this, there's a lot of different interpretations. Just quickly though, I think what it does show is it shows that the danger uh, the, the apostles are in danger, okay? This, this guy who's got the linen cloth is snatched, he's, he's grabbed. It shows that even the apostles there, the disciples, are literally, seriously, they're in danger. But it also shows that, uh, I think, this is speculation, I'm going out on a limb here a little bit, uh, a lot of people, church tradition teaches us, that this man who is unnamed here is actually Mark. Mark is inserting himself into the story here uh, and showing himself to be a coward along with the other disciples, But this scene here reminds us of something, I think. It reminded me of something. See if you see see the symbol, the the parallels here. It it makes me think of another garden scene. Here we are in the Garden of Gethsemane, but it makes me think of a different garden where someone else was naked and ashamed, fleeing the presence of God. In the Garden of Eden, where Adam fled from the judgment of God. And here we have the second Adam, Stepping up and taking the punishment where Adam failed and Adam fled. See, Adam in the Garden of Eden, he brought death. But Jesus, the second Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane here, brings life. Well, Judas knew full well what he was doing. He was deceiving others. This is the deception of Judas. He was pretending to be something that he is clearly not. Consciously, he was choosing to betray Jesus. But the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, I think they're a little bit different. 
I think that they were deluded. So let's look at that. Let's look at the delusion of the chief priests and scribes in that second point. And we'll see this in 53 to 65. I'll read that again. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, beginning saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Uh, See, the religious leaders here, I think, think that they're doing the right thing, but they're not. The scribes, the scribes should know this really well, right? They know the law well. They think that Jesus has broken the law, but they're trying to persecute Jesus by breaking the law. It's it's weird. It's a weird scene. They're deluded. They're self-deceived. This is an unjust trial that's taking place here against Jesus, the scribes, again, as I said, part of this fake little kangaroo court that they've set up against Jesus, they knew the law really well. They should have recognized all the ways that they were breaking their own laws, their own legal standards, in order to persecute Jesus. Uh, it was illegal to have a court at night. It wasn't held in a proper Jewish courtroom. It was legal to hold a trial on the day before the Sabbath, a feast day, no less. And it was a rushed trial. There was supposed to be a day between the court and a verdict. And of course, obviously, you see the fact that there are illegally uh, lying, perjuring witnesses testifying about Jesus. This whole thing from beginning to end is unjust. But they wanted to kill Jesus, so they couldn't let the law get in the way, could they? Think of the way that the people who held false witness against Jesus did that. They've got a goal in mind. They want to kill Jesus, and so they're willing to say whatever it is that they need to say in order to make that happen. They tried to accuse him of threatening to to tear down the temple. Now, we know from the Gospel of John uh, that Jesus does say, tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. He's talking about his body there, speaking metaphorically, speaking about his body there. He's not threatening to tear down the temple. He said, if you kill me, I will raise from the dead three days later. That was his point. They didn't get it. They didn't understand, and so they misquoted him. They were misjudging Jesus because they were misquoting Jesus. They were misjudging him because they misquoted him. Doesn't that happen today too, friends? Have you ever heard somebody go, oh, you know, it's like it says in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. Or cleanliness is next to godliness. Or, you know, that old biblical proverb, to thine own self be true. Nah. Don't put that on Jesus. He didn't say that. Listen, there are are people sometimes, I think, do that out of ignorance. That's one thing, right? 
Maybe they don't know, maybe they're not familiar with the Bible, they wouldn't recognize things that Jesus wouldn't say. That's one thing, but there are other people who are a little more sophisticated about it. They're intentionally trying to misconstrue the words of Jesus so that they can misrepresent him. Whether it's done out of ignorance, whether it's done out of animosity, don't do it. Both of those are terrible options. Don't misquote Jesus. Don't put words in his mouth. Beware of people who don't know Jesus as Lord that pass judgment on him and try to get you to condemn him too. Just be aware of that. It'll happen a lot. Our best defense against this, I think, is just to know the word well. Be discerning. Be able to recognize what it is that Jesus actually said. We've got plenty of accounts of it. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know who Jesus is. You'll know about his character based on the sorts of things that he did, based on the things he said. And you'll recognize when someone's trying to misconstrue what Jesus said. We see it all the time right now as it, as it relates to gender and sexuality. We're, we're reshaping Jesus. We're misconstruing the things that he said in order to meet up our goal. It's terrible. You cannot render a proper judgment on Jesus if you don't know exactly what he truly said. So don't reject a Jesus that you don't know. At the same time, don't follow a Jesus that you've made up. Both terrible options. But in the end, they don't even need to rely on these rumors that are all, they're false to, to, to condemn Jesus. You see, what really upset the high priest, what really got him going, was the fact that Jesus claimed to be divine. He had a claim to divinity. Did you see that in the text when I read that? Uh, these religious leaders, they knew the Old Testament really well, as you might imagine. And so when Jesus alluded to this biblical language, they recognized it. But we aren't not always as familiar with the Old Testament as these scribes and Pharisees were. So I want to I point out what, this past, what Jesus is alluding to. There's a prophecy in Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There's a prophecy about a coming day of judgment when the divine Son of Man would come on the clouds and be given dominion over all the earth. Riding the clouds, as it says there in Daniel 7, that's something that Yahweh does. So this is a claim to divinity. Jesus is just claimed to be God. It was very clear to these religious leaders. We know that because the high priest starts to hulk out, starts tearing his clothes off and screaming, calls a blasphemy. And they, all did, they decided that this blasphemy, which was not blasphemy because it was true, they decided that it was worthy of being killed for. So they sentenced him to death. They began to abuse him. They spat on him. They covered his eyes. They hit him. And in order to mock him as a prophet of God, they they covered his eyes and hit him and said, prophesy, tell us, tell us who it is that's hitting you when your eyes are covered. From Judas's betrayal to the injustice of the court, God is using the wrong actions of men to make us right with God. Do you recognize this? God, the just, is using the unjust actions of men to justify evil men. God the just is using the unjust actions of men to justify evil men. He is dying, this is the irony, Jesus is dying for the very types of sins that he's being killed by. He was delivered up through the definite plan of God, and he was killed by the hands of lawless men. And what these men meant for evil, God meant for good. And Jesus, <laughs> the statement, is, it's ripe with remarkable power and authority. He tells those that are standing there in judgment over him that, in fact, he is the ultimate judge. 
And the one day that he will return to judge both the living and the dead with perfect righteousness and take dominion over all the earth. (laughs) Yeah, the irony is thick here. Because they are judging him wrongly, he's going to return one day and judge them rightly. Friends, can you imagine a world where injustice no longer wins the day? Where we don't have to rely on these he said, she said trials. When people won't be given legal preference in the court system based on the color of their skin, based on the size of their bank account, based on how famous they are, how well known they are, but everyone is judged accurately. Can you imagine it? Now, I'm not talking about that sad and lame vision of John Lennon. I'm talking about this beautiful vision of John the Revelator. Where we read in Revelation where the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of God has come to earth to be upon earth and we will, we will dwell with God and he will be our God and he, we will be his people. Friends, if you hate injustice, you should love Jesus. If you look around and see this injustice in the world, you should love Jesus. You know, you should know, that the injustice in this world All the sin doesn't only take place out there. You don't just read about it in the news, right? It happens in here. It's in here too. You and I are guilty of that injustice. We rebelled against God, and therefore, we are guilty of the same sins, the punishment that's being put upon Christ. As Martin Luther said, we all carry nails in our pockets. And we sang earlier, it was our sin that held him there. Jesus bore all of the sin and the injustice of this world so that you might be set free from it, not just temporarily, but eternally. One day, Jesus will judge rightly. He'll return and dish out the penalty that is due for all of the evil that we see. So the question is, will you be found to be perfectly innocent? Don't be on the wrong side of history. Run to Christ. Hide yourself in him. In his perfection, you can be made and seen and declared perfect. Well, Judas planned to do wrong, and he did. The chief priests and scribes thought they were doing right, but they didn't. And Peter promised to do right and failed. So let's move on to the third point. Let's see the denial of Peter, 1466 to 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you're Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately... The rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He broke down and wept. It was only hours ago that Peter, to Jesus' face, mind you, promised that he would sooner sooner die with Jesus than deny Jesus. And now he finds himself doing the very same thing that he promised that he wouldn't do. He, he didn't want to get arrested with Jesus. He didn't want to get beaten. He didn't want to get killed. So he denied being Jesus' follower three times before the rooster crowed twice, just as he said it would happen. 
You see, Peter promised to do the right thing, but he failed. His intentions were good, I think. His motivations were good, but he failed. And he broke down and he wept. You have to wonder here if the sermon that he once heard Jesus preach sort of rattles around in his mind here. Maybe he hears these words echoing as he's weeping. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what could a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here was Peter trying to save his life, and he wept because he realized that in doing so, he was actually losing his life. What are you willing to give up Jesus for? For Judas, it was money. For Peter, he was trying to save his own neck. Maybe you'd settle just for not feeling awkward around the water cooler. Have you ever been tempted to give up Jesus at work or in the cafeteria at school? It might even happen on a day like you're super psyched. You're pumped. You had a great quiet time that morning. You're driving to work, listening to DC Talks, Jesus Freak. You're ready to fight. You're ready to go. And then over lunch, somebody named Derek goes, hey, uh, I heard that Christians can't eat lunch alone with people of the opposite sex. What's up with that? Or, hey, you don't think that everyone who's not a Christian stands condemned, do you? And then you do that thing where you raise your eyebrows and flutter your eyelids, pretending like you didn't hear the question and you need them to repeat it, but really you're just desperately hoping someone will walk in and talk about the Diamondbacks because you'd be glad to talk about that. Just me? Maybe that was too specific? Well, maybe you didn't out, outright deny him, and maybe you just didn't speak up when there was a time that you clearly knew that you ought to have spoken up. I remember a time in, in high school, it was maybe my sophomore year, it was an English class, and uh, we were just having an informal discussion in class, and there was this girl who was, who was cute, flirty with me, who spoke up, and I sort of out of the blue said, well, everybody knows the Bible's full of contradictions. And I knew this girl well enough to know that she had no familiarity with the Bible. Uh, she didn't know if there were any contradictions of the Bible. But she had heard somebody say this before, and she liked it. It fit her worldview, and so she repeated it. But I said nothing. I didn't speak up. She was cute. I was weak. That's what happened. Not proud of it. I'm saying this to my shame. I should have said something, I didn't say anything. And I can almost guarantee you that everyone else who was in the class that day, they're not going to remember that conversation. They don't even remember that. Probably I was even in the class. But I have always looked back on that moment. And it's always bothered me. It's always bothered me. What will people think if they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do if they find that it's true? Well, maybe you're willing to give up or trade Jesus for the, the affection of a boy or a girl who's not a Christian. Friends, don't do it. It's not worth it. But here's, here's, here's good news. Can you imagine a more rebellious and awful sin than what Peter committed here? Think about it. He, to Jesus' face, promised him. He said, I will not deny you. Hours later, denies him. And to his face, I mean, Jesus sees him. We read that in other accounts. He sees him while he's denying him. 
Well, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I'm willing to bet that you've done this too. Maybe not like Peter did, but we've got to come to grips with the fact that we are still sinners. We all stumble in many ways, and it does you no good to pretend to pretend as if it's impossible for you to sin. It does you no good to pretend as if it's impossible for you to lapse into sin. I think you're in a dangerous place when, when you say something like, no, nah, man, I'm not going to commit adultery. It's not something I have to worry about. 1 Corinthians says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you don't think you have to worry about falling into sin, then you're in a dangerous place. If you think it's impossible, you're not going to recognize when you're getting close to it. You're not gonna, it's not going to even be on your radar. And that's why I think, it's, I think it's wise, just as an example, I think it's wise to follow the, the, the Billy Graham rule. Have you heard of this? It was in the news a couple months ago. Uh, Billy Graham, famous evangelist, never was in a room alone with a woman of, well, a woman who was not his wife. Um, he did this for this, his own sake, for the sake of his wife, for the sake of his ministry, for the sake of other women that he worked with or interacted with. He set up a hedge around himself because he knew that adultery is a legitimate possibility. So he set that hedge up around himself. And th- th- listen, this is not a hard rule, okay? I'm not saying that you're sinning. I'm not a legalist here. I'm not going to say that you're sinning if you do this. I think it's unwise, though. It's not a hard rule, again, not necessarily sinning if you do that. But look, if the Apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus, can promise to him, to his face, that he won't deny him, and then turn around and do it hours later, we need to be more realistic about our own abilities. Okay? Well, have you denied Jesus? Maybe it wasn't as flagrant and obvious as Peter did here, but have you? How many times? Have you ever been tempted to think that you've just gone just too far this time? Friends, remember that Peter is restored. We read in the the, the Gospel of John that after his resurrection, Jesus appears to John and, and, and asks him three times if he loves him, and thrice Peter affirms that he does. And then, of course, Peter goes on to preach that first sermon of the New Testament that we see in Acts. He's there at the creation of the church. He's restored. Listen, if Peter is not beyond restoration, neither are you. No matter how many times you think you've denied Jesus or you actually, in truth, have denied Jesus, there is nothing that you have done that would keep you from him. It's also important, I think, to remember that we, as Christians, we shouldn't let our assurance of our own faith, of of our salvation, rise and fall on our own own performance. Peter went on from, in the garden, he went from chopping someone's ear off just to protect Jesus to the courtyard where Jesus is being trialed to complete cowardice, just completely denying him. He goes from violence in the garden to cowardice in the courtyard. Just hours apart. But aren't we, aren't we all capable of these same things? Don't we do this too? We go from one extreme to the other. And when we ride that roller coaster, we're thinking that we're square with God when we're on those mountaintops and that we're in danger, that he doesn't love us or value us when we're in the valleys. Or that we're apostate when we're in the valley. But when we do that, we rob ourselves of the loving assurance that God has bought for us. He's purchased for us in Christ. You stand in the perfect righteousness of Christ because of the love of the Father. 
And this is the reason that the Son has come into the world to suffer and die. It's because the God, God the Father so loved the world. Does that sound counterintuitive? All this injustice that's happening towards Jesus to bring about justice? It might sound like foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. But maybe you're starting to wonder. Maybe you're starting to wonder here this morning. Maybe you're thinking, well, I know that Peter was restored, but Judas, I've heard bad things about how he ends up. Judas is not restored, right? What if I'm more like Judas? What if I'm Judas? What if I'm not Peter? Well, we have to think about how they both ended up. Judas regretted his sin. Yes, he did, but he didn't repent. He didn't repent of his sin. He regretted the fruits of his sinful action, but he didn't regret the sin itself. Peter, on the other hand, repented. He was broken over his sin. So, so Judas looked at his guilt after he sinned. He looked at his guilt, and then he looked at death and hell. Peter, though, looked at his guilt and then looked at Christ and looked at heaven. Let me, let me ask you, let me implore you, let me plead with you this morning to look to Christ. If you've, if you've rejected God, if you've denied him, turn to Christ, flee to him. Don't look to death and to hell. Look to Christ who, who came to save us, took on flesh to ransom us. No matter what you think you've done, pray and ask for a heart of repentance. And that's what Jesus told Peter to do, if you recall, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Peter, stay up, stay awake. Pray and ask that you don't enter into temptation. So that's my advice for us, what Jesus said. So we've seen now, we've seen Judas's deception. We've seen the delusion of the chief priests and the scribes and the failure of Peter's promise. And now in this, this final section, let's look at the perfect faithfulness of Christ, even as he's being delivered for crucifixion. Chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. It says this, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away to be delivered to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they had asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man there named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up, but the chief priests the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have, them, to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate, Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So it's the next morning now. The Jewish leaders have held their fake kangaroo court against Jesus, and they found him to be guilty of blasphemy. And now they've turned him over to the state. They've turned him over to the Roman state and Pilate, because they want to have him crucified, and Pilate can do that. So 
Pilate's there. He's asking Jesus if he's going to defend himself against these, these things, all these charges that have been brought against him. But Jesus never spoke a mumbling word. And Pilate was amazed. Well, why aren't you defending yourself? And they had a, a tradition of releasing one prisoner uh, around this time of year of the Passover feast. And so, so Pilate asked the crowd, well, should I release Jesus? Because he thought maybe the chief priests are just doing this. Like this is really their plan and they're pushing the people along with them. So he's like, well, maybe should I, should I just release Jesus for you? But the chief priests, they led the crowd to ask for Barabbas instead. They wanted to have a, a murderer who was found guilty in the court of law to be released. And Pilate is genuinely confused. He does not get this. Why crucify him? What evil has he done? But Pilate, because he wanted to satisfy the crowd and against his better judgment, against his conscience, released Barabbas, the murderer. And he had Jesus severely beaten, scourged, and taken off to be crucified. Do you know what Barabbas translates to in English? I didn't know this until I studied it. Bar is son, Abbas is father. Barabbas is son of the father. In a supremely ironic, ignorant miscarriage of justice, they freed a man who is named son of the father in order to condemn the true son of the father. So this is the beginning of the end for Jesus' earthly ministry. The religious leaders have had enough of him and his threats to their power, and so they found a way to have him killed, even though he is guilty of absolutely nothing. And in a perfect picture of the gospel here, a guilty man is set free, while the innocent one is put to death. This is a beautiful picture, a beautiful illustration of penal substitutionary atonement. That is a Christian jargon term. If you've not been a Christian long, you might not know it. If you have, you might not know it. It's an important word. Penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, It just means that Jesus took the penalty for our sin in our place as our substitute. Here's here's the point. Here's here's why this is such a good picture. If, If Jesus didn't hang on the cross then Barabbas would have. You see how that works? In the same way, Jesus bore the penalty of our sin on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. The innocent for the guilty, the just for the unjust. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So throughout this passage this morning, we've seen Jesus, we've seen Jesus be betrayed, And yet he remained loyal to his disciples and to his father's will. We've seen him abandoned by his closest friends so that we could be adopted into his family. He had false testimony born against him so that he could intercede for us before the throne of grace. He was condemned to die that we might be approved by God. He was seized and spit upon and mocked and ridiculed so that our shame might be removed from us. He was bound so that we might be forever unshackled from the bondage of Satan. He was rejected in favor of freeing a guilty murderer so that we might be accepted in the presence of God. He was scourged, struck, hit, and delivered to be crucified to restore us to our creator, to remove the punishment of our sin and apply his righteousness to our account. This is the great exchange. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments 
how inscrutable his ways. Even in these acts of hatred against Jesus, against God, these acts of injustice brought about justice for those who would turn to Christ and accept him as their Lord and Savior. Pray with me.